All right, as you've made your way there, let's pause and pray. Father God, we thank you again um, for letting us meet together in your name. Lord, I pray that um, this morning these hours would be used. Lord, we know, Lord, we thank you that they are used according to your goodwill to grow your church, uh, to grow us in the inward being, to form us in the image of your Son. We know you sanctify us in your truth. We know your word is truth. Not only have you said it and declared it, you have proven it. And so I pray that you would take that word and do that very thing, that we'd be sanctified in this hour, and that your word would be more precious to us than any words we've received in our lifetime from any other source. And only you can make that happen. And so we implore you, we petition you, we come to you in great need that you would apply these words to our hearts, that you would bring about a change, that you would bring about a further um, Christ-likeness, that you bring about a further unity based on what you do in our hearts. So we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. You know, I uh, had the opportunity to be sick last week. And I say opportunity because of Romans 8, 28. That he causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so something happens to me when I'm sick, and Andy got to witness this. Um, I get angry. Not angry that I'm sick, surprisingly. Just angry. Just grumpy. Um, <laughs> I guess in that I get a little bold. But what, that's not a good thing. But what that caused me to do was to get real introspective on what it was that was making me angry on what it was that was disturbing me so much that I would feel boldness to speak in such a harsh way about things. And I found that some of it was righteous anger. Righteous anger due to the fact that the church at large in America has lost its way. It's lost its way in large part due to what verse 19 says here about not quenching the spirit. The church culture that I was investigating in my anger is quenching the spirit. And the way that the spirit is primarily quenched, uh, both in our time and both in their time, was by not only discounting the word of God, but ignoring it altogether. Or, or pushing it away altogether. And so when I was surveying many churches, both that I know and that I don't know, and even looking within my own heart, 
I found one common denominator. That we are not submitted, I am not submitted to every bit of prophecy, which would be things that God has said that have happened, are happening, or will happen, or commands he's given. I have not submitted, and the church at large has not submitted to everything he has said. In other words, we don't investigate this word closely enough to both find out the condition of our heart where we aren't following the Lord, or the condition of our body, how we don't display the gospel and the lordship of Christ over us. And so the aim of today, I believe, and the aim of Paul back then, was to make sure that we head off any rebellion that would be natural for sinful creatures to uh, respond to in regards to the word of God. In other words, there are parts of Scripture that are easy for us to identify and embrace and walk in. And even from person to person, those may differ. Some people may find it easy to show hospitality. Some people may find it easier to love their enemies. Some people may find that they have different proclivities, uh, even within the Spirit, to walk in certain ways. But then there's other things that we read in the Bible and we're like, no, we don't say that, maybe you do, but we're, we kind of ignore it, basically. That's how we say no. We act like Jesus didn't say that. And that is so wrong. And in fact, we, we found out in Sunday school this morning that to be countercultural in our age is to live our lives based on the truth and the truth of God's word, which is the source of all truth instead of what we feel, instead of what we feel. And if you are going by feeling more than the word of God, then you will quench the spirit. And that word quench means to kind of pour water on a fire. The spirit is often seen in terms of fire. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and Acts chapter 2, <coughs> the day of Pentecost, you see the spirit um, referred to in terms of fire. And so in essence, how we do that is to ignore, say no to, or disregard the word of God. And our goal is to press further and further into this, which is almost like as the word of God in Hebrews is expressed as the sword or in Ephesians, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. If we're to press further into it, it's, it's, it's to almost let that sword further enter our hearts so that it is piercing and so that it's getting to the, the division between joint and marrow and it's finding out all those areas in us that are still fleshly, still sinful, still desiring of their own way and not his way. There is a battle that rages on until it is <clears throat> no more. And that's at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When there is no more opposition to the will of God, when there is no more rebellion that lives in our hearts, when there's no more desire to gratify the flesh, but only a desire to worship the Lord wholly and completely 
with every ounce of our being forever. Until then, there is a fight. If there wasn't, then we wouldn't have uh, the descriptions that we have throughout Paul's writings and Peter's writings and John's writings and Jesus' warnings <coughs> to put on Christ, to, to, uh, to die to self, to take up your cross, to uh, put on the full armor of God that wouldn't be needed if there wasn't a battle still raging. And that main battle is not that this country has insane laws and proclivities. It's not that the culture across the world is, is sinful. It's that we reject the Word of God still. And I say we because there is a way in which we are all doing it. We're all guilty of it. And, and I'm speaking of these things because that's where we're at in the text and that's what the Lord has for us to talk about. But also because Jesus prayed that our joy would be made full, right? In, in his high priestly prayer towards the end of John before he's arrested. <coughs> and his, the, the essence of him praying that is that we would become more Christ-like, like him, because he's overcome the world through love, through truth, through obedience to God the Father, and therefore, Jesus experiences at all times greater joy than any one of us has ever imagined. And he wants our joy to be made full. And so he prays that those things would happen according to the word of God. That God would take these words and by the helper, the spirit that is being sent, he would apply those to our hearts and to our lives and empower us to walk in them and then our joy would be made full. So we need to find out, we need to investigate, we need to pray like David that he would, he would uncover any unclean way in us and that he would purge us with hyssop and make us clean <clears throat> so that our joy would be full. And if our joy is full, then we have something to proclaim in the fact that we live differently, full of joy, than the rest of the world who only looks out of their front door or through their TV and sees sorrow. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. <coughs> so I guess the great goal of mine here as your pastor is to teach you the word of God that you would be a glad people. Convicted, sure. Exhorted, rebuked, sure but all in efforts to be joyful. Do you think the angels in heaven, the cherubim, the seraphim that, that surround the throne of God, do you think they're miserable beings? No. They look into the full glory of God revealed before their eyes, and yet they long to understand the things that we understand. <coughs> to be those who have experienced a mercy and grace that are unimaginable. Experience a mercy and grace that make us sons of God when we are natural enemies of God. That invite us into a revelation of glory that they know is going to blow our minds for all of eternity. 
Paul even says that God desires to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> you understand that word immeasurable? It means you can't measure. It means that there is no end to discovering the riches of the glory of God. And so the amazing part about our sin that we still struggle with is that we tire of, grow weary of, looking into the glory of God. Or this Bible that we know is the word of God becomes ordinary to us. And we can allow it to gather dust. We can allow it to escape our hearts. We can allow it to not be memorized and cherished. We can allow it to not be taught. We can allow it to not direct our worship. We can allow it to not direct our life as a church. We can allow it to not be shared with our children. Do you know what happens within two chapters, well, within one chapter, really, of Israel's history in the book of Judges? They are commanded and, and called to remember the works of God, commanded to share those things from generation to generation. In other words, <clears throat> they're to speak the truth of God from the word of God about what God has done and about who God is. And, and Moses continuously reminds them to not forget, don't forget, say this, say this, don't forget, share with your children, wear it on your head, speak about it when you lie down and when you rise up or when you walk by the way, do these things with the word of God, what you know about God, share them, share them. And, and then within one generation, they forget. The word of God doesn't mean what it used to anymore. Everything's chilled out. They don't need God. I use air quotes because that's a silly thought that we don't ever need God. And quickly, they fall into depravity, they fall into worship of false gods, things made by hands, they begin to worship, through that they find ultimate despair, through that they find ultimate weakness, through that they find that they aren't more than conquerors that Romans 8 talks about, but they are conquered people, and therefore what? No joy, no life, no hope. But God being rich in mercy, he raises up these judges who protect them, right? And they're supposed to uh, uh, um, restore them and rescue them from the hand of the enemy and all that sort of thing. But one thing that the judges fail at is reminding the people of God to look back at him, to look at his word, to look at what he's done, to look at all their history from all of their ancestors and to see that they serve or should be serving the same God, and that no other God is like him. In fact, that there is no other God, but that there's only one God. I think they're supposed to recite that. And it's one thing to recite that. It's one thing to remember those things, but it's another thing to believe it. We can, we can have our quiet times, and we can have our devotions, and we can check off on our Bible reading list that we read day 57, 
and that we're moving on, but, but it's another thing to actually believe what we read. It's another thing to apply it. And if you quench the spirit, that zeal, that joy, that gladness, that happiness, that life is being kinked, so to speak. You're putting a kink in the hose. Now, it's amazing because you, that's, that's what you do have the power to do. You have the power to quench the spirit. You know why that is? It's, it's a form of discipline for God's people. To recognize that the, the power, the life, the joy is not flowing to you as you recognize in your spirit that it should is to be reminded by God that you're quenching the spirit. And if you're reminded by God that you're quenching the spirit, what do you have the opportunity to do? Repent. And we know from 1 John that if we're going to confess our sins before God, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And there's hope. So we may be, I may be, you may be quenching the spirit, but there's hope. He's a merciful, gracious God. Just repent. That's easy, right? Just do that. Everything will be okay. You know, this is akin to uh, what we see in Acts 17 11. And I'm going to be turning there while I explain this. Acts 17 11 is when we're introduced to the Bereans. Now, this is after Paul and Silas have been kicked out of Thessalonica. Interesting enough. That they've been kicked out of Thessalonica because the Word of God is certainly producing life and calling lost sheep there, but it's also doing something else. It's upsetting the Jews who not only have quenched the spirit by disregarding the prophecy of God, especially about Jesus, but have altogether uh, cut off any hope of life in the name of their Messiah. And so they find their way to Berea, and here's what happens with the Bereans. Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's called not quenching the spirit. That's called allowing the spirit to do what, what Jesus sent him to do, which is to namely remind the people and to introduce the people to everything that Jesus said, the words of life, the gospel, the good news. And as they are receiving the good news, their joy is increasing. And as their joy is increasing, they are becoming a large and bright gospel witness, simply by proxy, which means simply uh, by nature. Now, if, if you want to push back against what is evil in our nature and to do something that is totally against your nature to do, that would be to be filled with the joy of the good news in Jesus so that people can almost look at your face and know that there is something different in a good way, right? Sometimes people may look at my face and be like, something's different, but I don't think it's good. 
especially as we get older. But as they, but as they look, at, look at you, look at your life, look at your uh, demeanor, look at the way that you handle problems that come up, look at the way that you handle everyday annoyances or inconveniences, look at the way that they wait in line at the grocery store, assuming all the self-checkouts are full. Look at that. What? What are they happy about? But they know that prices are through the roof. Gas is four fifteen, and all this junk. Don't they know? Yeah, we know. But we also know the truth that God is the one who reigns supreme over all the universe. That God has promised us an internal inheritance that can't be taken away. That's imperishable, undefiled, kept for us in heaven. That God directs the hearts of the kings. They are like water in his hands. That nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. That we have the indwelling power of his spirit to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And that we gained all this knowledge by spiritually discerning the word of God. By being born again. And reading our Bibles with eyes that can see and ears that can hear. And hearts that actually beat with the life that God has given us. We can understand this word. We can hear God speak. And, and why do we uh, shortchange ourselves with that? This word means everything to us. It is sufficient for all of life, for every rebuke and exhortation and command. So as Paul's giving his parting words here, he's telling them to do certain things, which is what we looked at last time I preached. Rejoice, always pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That's the revealed will of God. That's what you should listen to, believe, do by the power of the Spirit living within you, and then there's some things to not do. First of all, you won't be able to do those things. Rejoice, pray, give thanks if you are quenching the Spirit. Why? Because you won't want to. That's what happens when I'm sick. I don't feel like opening the Word. I don't feel like listening to God speak. Therefore, the Spirit's quenched. Therefore, there's no rejoicing. There's no giving thanks. There's anger. There's frustration. There's joylessness. Do you understand, speaking on sickness for a minute, that's why James calls the elders to pray for those that are sick, to lay hands on and pray for those that are sick, because they're not going to. In general, that they're going to be in such a uh, a state that it's going to require brothers and sisters to pray on their behalf, to rejoice on their behalf, to give thanks on their behalf without ceasing. That life may come to them once again. You know, Spurgeon, everybody talks about him because it's the cool thing to do. Um, had that great accident where 
somebody shouted fire. They lost, I don't know, seven people basically being trampled to death as everybody tried to rush out of this great big auditorium. And Spurgeon went into such a depression that he despaired to even touch the book, let alone look at it. You know how he recovered? Number one, the faithful prayers of his wife on his behalf. Number two, the faith of the faithful people in his church that felt for what he was feeling and had the strength and wherewithal to pray on his behalf. And then he found his way once again in step with the Spirit. So, this is going to happen to all of us. We're all going to quench the Spirit, willingly. Um, And that's why you need to be a part of a church, so that you have brothers and sisters who can pray on your behalf to get you out of there. So he tells them to do not do this thing. Do not despise prophecies that seem to be the nature of the of the people and the hearts that surrounded them was to everything that came from the word of God disregard it. Right? We already have the Old Testament, everything else disregard. Even though everything they were seeing and hearing was in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So prophecy is uh, telling of God's decrees, essentially. And it can be uh, foretelling, something that God has decreed will happen in the future, or it could be forthtelling, telling of something that God has decreed now. What I do is I foretell. I tell you what God has decreed now. Sometimes I foretell if I preach through revelation. That would be, that would be foretelling because that hadn't happened yet, at least some of it. So uh, they are receiving instructions in light of the gospel, the new covenant. And we know from Ephesians 4 that God had provided them with prophets at this time. So it's not the prophets ended with John, right, as the last of the Old Testament prophets. But it's, it's that prophecy or the telling of God's decrees were still happening. And still happening in a sense that they were even talking about things that were yet to come. Now, uh, we don't need that anymore. We have a closed canon or a closed uh, library of scripture. We have the end told to us or foretold to us in the book of Revelation. But what we can do now is despise the word of God. And so when when I was examining the the church culture last week, I was seeing through all these subtle little things how the church despises the prophecy of God. Even in something as simple as uh, having women as pastors. That, that's, a, that's offensive. Or the, the, the command for Paul to not allow that is offensive to some people, and they feel it, and so they despise it. They don't like that. So put it away. 
They don't even look at the fact that, according to Ephesians 5, and according to the Garden of Eden, if you get the gender roles that God has designed for a specific purpose, if you get them out of order, you distort the gospel. Because in those gender roles, ultimately, we're supposed to see the gospel. We're supposed to see Jesus loving, washing his bride with the word of God. We're supposed to see him as an example in shepherds and how they care and put their life on the line and protect and, and, and serve the sheep. And so we don't like that. I feel like I want to do this. So whatever Paul said, whatever the word of God said, it's probably not right. Let me do some uh, translation jujitsu here and make it better. It's not that we, or Paul doesn't, want women to serve and be a prominent uh, place in the church. It's just that there's certain things that aren't assigned for certain genders. No problem with that. In fact, there's glory in that. Because we think we know better than God, and what he said, despise prophecy. Don't want anything to do with that. But hey, we do it too. And we have to examine our hearts and see how we're doing that. And we have to remember grace. Grace that we all are in need of God to convict us and show us where we are falling short and ignoring or despising what he has said and not following through on his commands and obedience as he's Lord of our life and that as he's working on us, we prayfully, prayerfully hope and, and uh, depend on the fact that he is working on them. And it comes back to the take the log out of your own eye, right? Before you remove the speck in others. Should always be examining ourselves first. And that was the error I found in my anger. That I wasn't looking at myself. I was looking at everybody else. Sure, they're wrong. And they're hurting the gospel. And making it not visible in their church. But how am I not making the gospel visible in my life? In my home? That's more pressing. So the same command goes for us today. Do not despise prophecy. If the word of God says it, ask questions, wrestle with it, like Jacob, until God blesses you with the ability and the understanding of the truth and why it's good. Why it's good. So verse 21, test everything. Hold fast what is good. You know that before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was holding truth hostage and even perverting it to their gain. And what couldn't be done by most people was uh, being able to test what they were saying. Not until a few men that God raised up could read Latin and were even teaching in the Roman Catholic Church, and God gave them understanding, discernment, by causing them to be born again, by causing them to see and hear and understand the truth. And so they were testing then everything that they were hearing and holding fast to that which is good, which is what caused the Reformation, which was what caused Martin Luther to say in 95 ways, no, indulgences are bad according to Scripture, which is what caused the Puritans to gather 
the scriptures and say, no, we need further reform. You can't, the Church of England cannot dictate how we worship, which is not according to scriptures, but according to their desires. No, we have to test everything and hold fast to what is good. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. <coughs> this is why sometimes you hear me name false prophets by name. Because my job is to protect the sheep from wolves and evil spirits that come in the nature of false teaching. And it's nothing new. It's been happening since the inception of the church. And you know how we test those false teachers and know they're false teachers? <coughs> because the things they say are contrary to the word of God. That's how we know. That's an easy test, right? Well, it would require you to know and to test the word of God yourself. And then to find that, that this is not in step with the word of God. This is not in step with truth. This is how we understand the prosperity gospel to be false. This is how I understand speaking in tongues in the Pentecostal church to be false. According to 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. We test all these things and we can know. And then we can live in the truth. This is how I know what's in my own heart. Because I read what Jesus is like and find in and of myself an opposition to that. We test everything by the scriptures like the Bereans. If you're doing that faithfully, then not only will you be protected from false teaching by being carried away by every wind and wave and doctrine of doctrine, but your love and your joy should grow. As you're pushed further into the truth of God, you are given more of his life-giving word poured into you, <coughs> and therefore you are further nourished and equipped to love and to express joy. What can happen is like what happened to the Ephesian church. They were looking out for false prophets. They did a great job. But they were fact checkers. We don't want to be just fact checkers. We want to know why. Why isn't it good for women to be shepherds? I've gone through that. And I found. Because the visibility of the gospel that, that God designed when he designed genders is maintained and glorified when you maintain his order as he's a God of order. It's not that we just want to bring prohibitions to people. We want the gospel to be clear, to be known, to be everywhere. <coughs> Abstain, verse 22, from every form of evil. Or some of your versions may say from the appearance of evil. <coughs> Galatians 
If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is following a discussion starting in verse 16 of Galatians 5, where, where, where Paul is describing to them how they should walk by the Spirit in opposition to gratifying the desires of their flesh. And then he tells them what the flesh looks like. He tells them what evil is. You know what the Bible describes us as, as, as sinners? Inventors of evil. Isn't that amazing? We have creative power in how to do evil. That's what can be contributed to us. But the author of good is God. And so the Spirit of God displays to us what is good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a good way to know if you're living in step with the Spirit and abstaining from every form of evil. <coughs> if you're doing things that are not in line with those fruits, or that don't contribute to those fruits being known in your life and being known by others, then it's probably a form of evil. One easy way to just have this instilled in your heart is to get to know Jesus in the gospel. And if Jesus is who we say he is, if he is who the Gospels portray him to be, then everything in opposition to who he was, who he is, how he walked, how he loved, how he served, <coughs> how he gave, how he rebuked, would be evil. So all this to say, if you're afraid of quenching the Spirit, if you don't want to be someone who despises prophecies, even if they're hard to swallow, if you want to know what's good by testing it, then make Jesus the prominent figure in all of your life, intellectually, spiritually, physically. Jesus must be at the forefront. It must be his eyes through which you see the world called a Christian worldview. It must be his life in which you see good and love and service and humility and you can follow. Imitate him. That's what Paul's doing. That's why Paul says imitate me as I follow Christ. Then you will abstain from evil. You will not quench the spirit. You will Hold fast to what is good by testing the prophecies <coughs> according to the truth. So everything can be traced back to seeing Jesus. Then you will, by nature, be able to spot something contrary to Jesus. And I'll just leave you with this. This, this is how these, these, some of these tribes in Africa that had got enough of the gospel to know what wasn't Jesus and to proclaim those very words to us without us ever saying those words to them. See Jesus, and you see him through his word. So look.
pray that you respond to the Lord as he is calling you or convicting you, moving you, and then we'll stand and sing together.